Um, people also often ask, what does your husband do? Um, is he comfortable with you being in a senior role? You know, and, and you can take that question at face value and you can answer or you could say, well, what does your wife do? Is she comfortable with the fact that you do this? Um, so I think it is person by person pushing back, pushing back on all of those biases, pushing back on all of that deep set learned behaviors in this country. Welcome to the Sage Summit's Invisible Admin Podcast. Together, we're going to discuss the topic of diversity and inclusion by bringing together insights and opinions and making sense of what's happening in businesses worldwide. You'll learn practical tips and lessons which will help your business create a culture of diversity and inclusion. In this week's podcast, Vincent Hoffman sits down with Kimberly Axon, Head of People, Sage Africa and Middle East, and Gerard Foster, Director at Project Fable. We'll get right into it as they discuss diversity and inclusion within the future of work. Enjoy. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Invisible Admin Podcast. Here with two guests, I'm going to let them introduce themselves, so I'm going to go over to you to introduce yourself first. Hi, I'm Kimberly Axon, and I am the People Director for Stage Africa Middle East, otherwise known as HR Director. Um, I don't have a title as fancy as that. <laughs> <laughs> no competition. Uh, I'm Gerard Foster. I represent a little consultancy called Project Fable. Um, and we work in content and experience design. Cool. So what does a people director do? That sounds interesting. Yeah, it's a good question. My family actually asked that. They asked if I'd just stand around all day directing people. Um, and that's, that's not what I do. So it's, it's the old um, kind of HR role, but in a more modern way in terms of supporting a business, making sure that you tick all the boxes, um, in terms of legislation and then on top of that a real focus at SAGE is employee morale, making sure that people are happy, engaged um, and very recently at SAGE a big push globally to make sure that everyone feels included. Very cool. And G, what, what does a consultancy that focuses on content and experiences do? Um, tell me your story rather actually, I'm, I'm probably more interested in your story. Which story? You know, I have many stories. Um, but to answer the first part of your question, though, um, what our business does essentially is we either create or curate content for brands to help them build communities around them. Um, and so in designing that, a lot of times inclusion is a very important thing because you have to know who you're speaking to. You have to understand the diversity of that market. Um, a lot of what we do, because we operate across the continent, is helping whether it's South African companies that want to expand across into the rest of SSA, or countries, uh, I mean companies that come from Europe or the US that want to get into the broader kind of African market, is firstly making them understand that Africa is not one country. And then kind of splitting it down and saying, okay, there's 54 countries, and then you also need to decide how there are so many nuances that exist in that space in, and so you're going to have to you, you know, pick a battle in order to get into those spaces. I think you've touched on something that's very important and, and the more I interact with people who are in the human capital uh, industry 
is this idea of diversity. And in South Africa, we, we're not a homogenous society. There is such diversity in, in, in our people. How does someone who's head of people tackle this very messy idea of, of, of diversity at work? So two things. I think the first thing is that um, I worked in the U.S. for a few years before deciding to move back to South Africa. And I think the perception of South Africans looking at the U.S. is that they have everything sorted out and that these issues don't exist there. And it was so refreshing as a South African to realize they're in much more a deeper hot water than we are. Um, they don't talk about these issues. They um, feel that they're all in the past. So moving back to South Africa, I kind of had fresh eyes in terms of what was happening in, in our country. And I think the first challenge for me as someone in the people group that pushes this agenda is I'm a white female South African. So talking about diversity, I'm already um, raising some flags, maybe getting some people, um, some people's backs up. So how do I, as a white South African, push an agenda about diversity, um, taking into account this country's history. And I think the first thing for me was to realize how I felt about it personally. Um, I'm a female. I've been discriminated against because I'm a female. Uh, but what I also don't want to do is exclude anyone because the more you talk about involving people and inclusion, you have to make sure you don't exclude any other group. So how as a female do I raise awareness without making our male colleagues feel excluded from the process? So I think that's been a big part of our journey here at SAGE is how do we get men to buy into this and come on the journey with us? And in our first kickoff that we had last year for diversity and inclusion, we actually had more men attend the session than women. And it was it was magical. It's magical to have men standing up for the inclusion of females in the workforce. Yeah, I, th I think it's interesting. Just before we started this, you were ordering a popular cab online. <laughs> and this popular cab company right now in the news has gotten some serious flack for female engineers not having, not feeling like they've got a, a home. I don't know if you've, mm -hmm. if you've come across this article about uh, a woman called Susan released a blog about it. And it just touches on this idea of how important it is to address these issues because I think what she faced at work sounds horrific. How do we, how do we have those conversations? I think that possibly something that you mentioned that's so important, sometimes they don't even happen. How do we start having the conversations about gender? So for me, I think it starts at home. So I'll give you that example. So I was just um, calling a popular cab service um, for a lady who works for me in my home. And she's worked supporting families like myself of working moms for the last 40 years of her life. And she's actually taking driving lessons right now because she doesn't want to support families in the future. And I'm supporting that. So I would hope that she'd become a part of that popular company in the near future. So I think you start at home um, and then look at your own life. Look at how comfortable you are with these topics. Look at your own bias and make sure that you're comfortable and brave enough to have the conversation, um, to defend your points, but also to be open to, to things that are going to be really personal. You know, you cannot talk about diversity without bringing in race, gender, religion, and none of those subjects are comfortable for us as human beings, as a woman, as a man, as a Muslim, um, if I was Jewish, if I'm Christian, we're going to bump heads. So how comfortable are we um, and do we have safe boundaries around that conversation for what is comfortable to talk about and make sure that we're respectful 
and then where are we where is it becoming hate speech so i think that's probably the most important thing is start at home and then also set up safe boundaries for the conversations yeah it's interesting uh, gerald you, you work quite a lot in the entertainment industry where diversity particularly in getting the right mix mm-hmm. of voices is important i mean do you have any thoughts around the idea of creativity and and diversity um yeah i do i think um when I spoke and did the introduction, I spoke about us doing experience design. And one of our clients is a business school, a leading business school. And we work with their school for innovation, creativity, and entrepreneurship. And what we do is we help them to design some of the executive leadership courses. Um, because I think a lot of businesses are realizing that they, they require creativity, creative problem solving, and innovation in order for them to be prepared for the generations that are to come. Um, I recently had the opportunity to spend some time with Seth Godin in New York and I mean everything that he kind of talks about is trying to get people to move out of the industrialized way of thinking into understanding that right now we exist in the connected economy. So inclusion and diversity are standard features and until we can kind of default to, okay, we're going to be human beings first and foremost. Let's start there before we start sticking all these labels of Muslim, black, white, Asian, etc., etc. For me, that's where the world needs to go. That's what companies need to understand, is that there's, there's no longer an industry of, you know, it, it's not an industrialized industry, it's about connections, one-on-one with people. Because even in the experiences that we design or the things that we consult about, we always maintain that, <clears throat> you know, people will use buzzwords. So we talk about diversity or inclusion or whatever it may be. But the challenge a lot of times is how it gets packaged. You know, it's like when social media became a big thing and everybody was like, oh, well, we have to be on Facebook or we have to be on Twitter. But the, the the execution of what needed to happen wasn't quite understood. I used to be a web developer, same thing. Companies used to be like, oh, I need a website. And you're like, okay, but do you understand that this could be a business extension? Or do you just want an electronic brochure because it's the thing that... So you're, you're trying to point out this idea that it's also becoming a scorecard more and more. I mean, there's a lot of organizations now who are scoring themselves based on a diversity and inclusivity index. Um, who are largely missing the point. I mean, if you're doing it for the measures or doing it for the targets, you're not transforming. And that's where transformation often comes up, which seems to be more about this full buy-in to the idea of why inclusivity and diversity are good for business. Um, What interests me most is how diversity and inclusivity are actually, in fact, good for business. There seems to be a correlation between the success of a business and uh, diversity. Mm -hmm. And the more diversity is, the more um, more successful. I think it's important also to you know, to the point that was made earlier around getting men to stand by and to support the initiative, etc., etc. We have all of these things where we've, we've been taught to see differences as opposed to similarities. Um, and I think that if that is not almost inculcated into the culture of a business, you're going to have problems. I think when you, when you touch on that, Gerald, the risks of of this in business. So we've seen the statistics. We know that diverse companies um, are much more successful. But I think when most companies look at diversity and inclusion, they think about how do we attract diverse people. They don't think about how do we start in our own backyard. 
have we addressed this in our community? And I think for me, I felt the same. So I, I kicked off this diversity and inclusion group and I thought that the topics, I thought I understood what the topics would be. And out of the first conversation, what came out is that we hadn't addressed um, the lesbian and gay and bisexual community in our organization. So a whole other aspect of diversity that I hadn't considered. So I think that's the first point of call for every business is don't create a scorecard to try and attract diverse people. You already have diverse people. Do they feel included in conversations? And the most important thing for employees is can I be myself at work? And if you don't feel that you're in the right space where it's okay to be lesbian, it's okay to be to be Muslim and, and yes these are labels, but these are human beings. And if I don't feel comfortable to be all that I am in the workplace where I spend the majority of my time, I'm not going to stay and I'm not going to buy into all your other values and I'm not going to push all of the other business agendas that are on my table. So I'd really push companies to don't look at a scorecard to, to find all these diverse people that are out there and these millennials. You already have them, but are you starting conversations with them and making sure that things happen to ensure that they're engaged and that they in part then attract further diverse groups. Absolutely. So I think you've touched on a very interesting way around this, this idea of community, particularly at work. I mean, th there seems to be some interesting research done that as, as businesses scale, they tend to get less efficient, which is very interesting, whereas societies, as they grow, they become more efficient and healthy. Now you point to this idea of people feeling comfortable at work. 70% of their lives are spent there. You know, if you don't feel comfortable for 70% of your life, it's just hard. It's a hard step to actually believe. I mean, you mentioned this good point. Companies need to start looking at their back, their own backyard. For me, it's it's just a, it's a mandate. If, if anyone listening to this podcast and thinking, well, what should I take away from this right now? Uh, the first one is start have the conversation with your with your team. Uh, find out who they are. I mean, maybe that brings us to a question: How do you find out who people are? Because some people find that very difficult. I think it's also, it's not about just raising the conversation and that's what I spoke about earlier of questioning your own, your own values and your own beliefs around this because don't start the conversation if it's not going to be genuine. And I so often think of in a South African context, there are the agendas we talk about um, at work and people can come across as really passionate about something like this. And then there's that conversation around a braai or a bar on a mm. Friday night and do those conversations match up? because you cannot come to work Monday to Friday and push an agenda that your heart isn't really in because that will come across and anyone involved in these really sensitive conversations needs to feel safe, needs to feel comfortable, um, needs to know that they're not going to be pushed out of an organization because they've come forward with a difference that they have. Um, so I think before you start the conversation, before you find out who your team is, find out who you are as a leader, find out what your comfort level is, do you have any biases, is there something you need to work on before you go out and and kind of tackle this really sensitive topic. Absolutely, I think, I think this idea of interrogating your own biases has become ever clearer in broader society that if, if you don't do that you can't have a good conversation with someone. Mm -hmm. um, there's just no way that you can actually see someone else's point of view without without changing. I mean, you see it quite a lot in people who are racist. Uh, you have a very rational argument with a person who's racist and say this, this is the reasons for not doing that. 
but that deeply held belief doesn't get overcome. Um, it's such a huge challenge, though. I mean, I don't know how, that that for me is such a huge challenge at work is to is to encourage spaces where people can overcome those biases. I have a really good example of that, and it was from a time that I was working in the U.S. So I worked um, for a really, really large company, 66,000 employees worldwide, and I worked in the head office. And we had one of our senior directors had a birthday, and we got everyone in the boardroom together, you know, the normal thing, cake, celebrate, sing. And one of the employees had made her a gift and wanted her to open it in front of all of us. And this was what looked like a very diverse group of people. And this senior director opened the gift and it was a bright red necklace. And the employee who gave it to her explained, it's a, a red necklace because of the spilt blood of Jesus Christ. Um, and a, a conversation around Jesus ensued in this boardroom in front of a huge group of, of our employees. And I left the room feeling hugely uncomfortable. And I went and chatted to my boss, uh, who was also an expat, and we spoke about how that was inappropriate. And my boss pushed back. Someone who I knew as being very open-minded, because she was Christian, she didn't see a problem with what had just happened. So I had to really push her buttons. So I had to ask her, if I want to celebrate my birthday in a burqa, and I want to read from the Quran to all of you, would it be acceptable? And she said it wouldn't. So I said, that's what we have to do. We have to ask ourselves those really difficult questions of, if someone happens to be part of the majority of a big community, whether it be religion, race, etc., is it okay that they share their views, but the minority group, that wouldn't be acceptable? Then we have the answer. So I think it's also... You know, we spoke about leaders just now, but what is the everyday person and all colleagues in a company, what's their responsibility? Their responsibility is also to push boundaries, respectfully so, to give examples of, um, you know, just because I'm a white female, do you expect that I'm not Muslim? Well, I might be Muslim and I might want to celebrate my birthday by reading from the Quran. And if we're not okay with that, then we can't be reading from the Bible. You know, how far does this go in terms of including everyone. It's an evolving conversation that we should never stop poking holes in. Yeah, I, th I think that's a lovely sentiment because one of the things that we're, we're seeing now in broader society is a backlash against what's called PC culture. This idea that it's not okay to be politically correct and being politically correct does actually mean inclusive. You know, interrogating things like should we have Christmas trees is actually a meaningful conversation yet often get, it gets dismissed as why are you worried about that? The, the deeper held view is, though, is that there's a dominant dogma of our company that's the one that we've chosen. Mm -hmm. And I think oftentimes people fail to reflect on that. You know, these small gestures actually reflect our cultural disposition. I'm curious about, and, and this is a personal grievance of mine, but particularly in the branded entertainment space, diversity is often stock art. Mm -hmm. And you have probably seen this, Gerard. Uh, Gerard, how do we start overcoming the facade of diversity um, and actually start to represent people in their true selves because I think lots of companies are uncomfortable with revealing what they're really like. Look, I think you're never going to get it right simply because one of the greatest flaws we have is the human condition. So you're going to have to unpack that because that's like one of the loaded statements. No, Podcast episode two. <laughs> Um, I believe that you know the the human condition is a is a problem because no one person or individual is the same. To the point that you were making, I believe that it's important for people to start with themselves. 
But the challenge you have in so many organizations, and, and it's not about attacking the corporate world, because even in the, the, you know, the world of entrepreneurs, etc., etc., the challenge you have is we go into a lot of things with a lot of assumptions. That's the first problem. Um, we assume that because somebody has a particular title that they actually have the ability to lead. A myth, you know. Um, we assume that somebody has the presence that you have as a leader because you understand your responsibility, you understand your job, you understand what it is you're trying to manage and transform at the same time. But until you get to a point that you can say to an organization, okay, this is how we're going to train and nurture our leaders, and this is how we're going to train and nurture the people that come into the business. Yeah, I mean, that's what you're going to say something. I think it's interesting because I think so far our conversation has focused so much um, on race, religion. The age part for me is huge. I am, I'm quite young, um, and I'm quite young to be in the role that I'm in. And I remember specifically traveling the world, so I was given expat positions in different parts of the world. And when that happens, for anyone listening, you, you're inducted into a new city by going to an expat party. And it's normally at a country club or um, someone's house. And it's very kind people that kind of welcome you into this new community of expats who, of course, assume you would want nothing to do with locals. Um, and they try and find other um, people with the same nationality as you. So they'll set you up. I moved to Kenya and they said, oh, there's this huge community of South Africans and we can set you up. And I, I thought, I definitely don't want to meet the whole community of South Africans. I've moved to Kenya so that I'm not in South Africa. Um, but the other thing is the age. So people would automatically, um, I think gender ties in, they'd automatically assume that my husband um, had, had earned the role that had moved us. So at a dinner party, they would say to my husband, well, what role has brought you to Kenya? Or what role has brought you to Texas? Uh, and he would have to humbly say, I don't work. Um, I follow my wife around the world. So it's her role and you should ask her. But the second thing was my age. Uh, in interviews, in everyday conversation, I will often be asked, aren't you too young for this role? Uh, and I think we, we take for granted what the next generation is dealing with. How, how old should I have to be to inspire people, to transform? Am I not more in touch with what is happening in our country um, than someone who's more senior? Who gets to decide that? Is it uh, a group of a, a small population in a company um, that have been making that decision for the last 20 or 30 years and perhaps haven't updated their thinking? So I think the age, and it all ties in, um, but it, it would kill me to be asked, how young are you? And, and in my role, obviously my role sometimes I get into sticky situations is, well, how old do you need to be to handle those things? I know the labor law of this country. I'm a confident human being. I, I think I'm quite on the ball. So what, what is the right age to be in my role? And I think I've made a lot of people really uncomfortable. And at Sage, that was acceptable. That was it kind of opened more doors of, wow, I'm really sorry I asked you that. I wasn't even aware that I had thought that. Um, people also often ask, what does your husband do? Um, is he comfortable with you being in a senior role? You know, and, and you can take that question at face value and you can answer or you could say, well, what does your wife do? Is she comfortable with the fact that you do this? Um, so I think it is 
person by person, pushing back, pushing back on all of those biases, pushing back on all of that deep set learned behaviors in this country. Um, when I moved back to South Africa, I was really disturbed firstly to see everything on social media that I had seen. Everything was so racially charged, it was so angry. And then I realized I'd actually rather live in that country than in another one where it is so easily uh, swept under the carpet that there is no space to discuss it. It happened in the past, we've totally corrected it, none of the buses exist um, that separate people, women have jobs, women are earning, stop talking about it. Whereas in this country it's uncomfortable, it's deeply painful, but at least the conversation is still on the table. We also spoke to Leola Britton, Talent and Leadership Development Manager at SAPI, about diversity and inclusion in the workplace, how to broach this area and how to apply it. Here's what Leola had to say. SAPI seems to me like a great example of how an organization should work. Um, but then how do we address those that aren't necessarily doing the job so well? So um, there's a saying that goes, it starts with parking. So there's this idea that you, you come into the building and the first thing that you see as an employee is the CEO's parking bay. So um, there's already this mindset that the CEO is more important than me um, and you don't necessarily have a parking spot as just, you know, perhaps the receptionist or someone else working at the, at the company. So um, there's that idea from the onset that there's a hierarchical structure and you should adhere to this hierarchy no matter what. Um, how, do we, how do we give people more agency within hierarchical structures and how can we address structures that aren't necessarily doing the best job? Yeah. I know that, you know, it would be unrealistic of me to say that everybody that works at SAPI are happy chappies. Yes. You know, we're not. Um, and, but what I do like about SAPI is, is our ability to have those critical conversations that you need to have. Mm. So I referred earlier to our uh, annual talent review uh, process. That is a series of conversations and I think that um, that's one of the reasons why I like SAPI as an organization because uh, conversations with various people in various roles are seriously encouraged um, and so when we do our talent reviews for example I go with the HR executive uh, to all of our business units and he spends an entire day just talking about you know who's our people that we need to take note of who are our uh, uh, engineers in training let's meet them what are your concerns um, let's talk about scarce and critical skills who's retiring what are we going to do so it's a it's an entire day conversation that we have um, with the with the leadership team at the various business units that that then gets rolled up into a senior leadership conversation rolled up into an exco conversation, rolled up into a conversation at board level. So that's one of the things that I like about uh, about SAPI. You can't make everybody happy all the time. However, I do think that um, if, you, if you have a platform to engage and you know this is how this organization operates, this is what, what uh, this organization is all about, these are the conversations that take place within this organization, I can then make a decision um, as a as a human being or as a person to say, you know what, 
this place is actually not for me i uh, I, i i do not think that i belong here and then um, mm-hmm. and then i choose to to leave you know and right. so i think the best way to create that uh, that agency that you talk about mm-hmm. is let's talk about it let's create an environment where people feel safe enough uh, to share their deepest the deepest concerns we might not be able to offer you a solution to your concern immediately however you do, you, you do have the opportunity to put it on to, on the table for for a discussion to be held that's really great um i appreciate that so um there's also the idea that it's that hr and diversity and inclusion is uh, just a box to tick uh, just a measurement yeah you know uh, just a kpi Um, how do we change organizations' mindsets about this? We put that, uh, and, the, and uh, we did have that perception at SAPI as well. <laughs> um, and so what we did was we created, we didn't call it diversity and inclusion, uh, employ- employment equity, we called it transformation, which I think mm-hmm. is a lot nicer because it, it talks about let us all be involved as part of the transformation of this organization. And the strategy that we put together is a multi-pronged strategy. So I, for example, I own the uh, talent portfolio within SAPI. Um, and so my role, as far as the transformation strategy is concerned, is to look at all the people that's retiring. Do we have uh, the right people in place to take over? And are they the right gender, age, color, yes, etc.? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and do we have the right mix? So that's my role from a transformation perspective. Uh, uh, a strategy perspective my colleague that works in uh, Rayman Benefits uh, had a look at our performance bonuses that we get as a management team and they said let's change this and so if you do not meet your transformation targets you don't get the bonus oh, so oh. <laughs> <laughs> that was yes that was uh, we've also included it there um from a recruitment perspective we also look at do we have the right uh, are we recruiting the right people mm-hmm. from um, a skills perspective do we have the right uh, just just gender race equity mix of people um and then we also involve our employees through the engagement survey and we're going to be running a series of um workshops where people have the opportunity to talk about what um, diversity and inclusion means to them. them. Um, So it's a multi-pronged approach that we are taking and I think that uh, the the strategy is about, I would say, just over a year old Mm -hmm. Um, and we've just, because because there's so many stakeholders that feel like they have a a role to play, you know, Mm -hmm. I make sure that my portfolio Uh, is sorted, the recruitment person makes sure that her portfolio is sorted, the uh, benefits and REM lady makes sure that people do not get paid their bonuses, you know, because it affects everybody. And I think that because it's multi-pronged in nature and because there's so many people that own the strategy, um, we've seen major, major improvements in just just a year. Yeah, even with uh, with a very low of turnover because you can't exactly tell people to leave so as you know as people retire or they resign and we replace them we replace them with the right mix of people just Mm. to make sure that uh, that the organization is that is diverse as possible and we meet our transformation goals speaking of goals how how do you measure 
Um, what's successful, what's not working? <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have, um, like I said, it's a multi-pronged strategy and I'm just talking with my, uh, you know, thinking about my portfolio. So we run um, the engagement survey every two years and diversity and inclusion is one of our measures uh, that we use. Um, and we're running our survey in September this year, so I'm hoping to see some sort of an uh, improvement that was not great when we ran it in 2017. Uh-huh. It was one of our lowest performing categories. I think we scored uh, something like 56% overall, which is 12% below the um, below our target that we've okay. set for ourselves. So that's one of our uh, targets that we've set. Obviously, there's numerical goals and objectives at each uh, management layer uh, mm-hmm. that we then report back to um, Department of Labor. Um, and then we also, another um, goal is our the number of workshops that we've had uh, and employee perceptions. Uh, so we've got numerous tar- targets and goals that we, have, that we look at. And where's to assess? Yeah. Good to hear. That's good to hear. Absolutely. I think, I think it's a, a very good point around this idea of being comfortable with the tension of the truth. Um, we've seen it now with a fairly well-known political specter that looms over the, the world in, in America, who, was, who managed to rally up a lot of the discontent that went unsaid. And if, if, you're, if, uh, if as a small business owner, you, you want that for your business, um, to rally up the discontent, then, then by all means, uh, trump up your business. But I, th- I think it, it brings us to such an important point, right? If, if we if we don't surface those uh, those tensions in, in discussion, or um, boy, they can be a lot more poisonous once they're kept under the surface. Uh, we see this quite a lot in the small to medium enterprise space, for which we do a lot of consulting for. So there's a lot of young black talent emerging into the workforce now, who are largely burdened by the presumptions about what young black people are able to do. So in the news media, they're portrayed as a certain type of person. So we're either portrayed as a struggle a- a- activist, this activist archetype, or alternatively, you, you're given some sort of, well, model C, you hear this quite a lot in social media, model C, or clever, um, which is so interesting, that at least we're talking about it. But I worry that a lot of small businesses aren't thinking about these things cle- clearly. They need to, they need to address them. Um, so I suppose it, it, it's kind of ironic that, because you think you're burdened by your whiteness and your gender. I am burdened by my surname, Hoffman. <laughs> a German heritage, a white guy, um, who is potentially, if he suits up, the archetype of what a manager should look like. I'm the right height. Uh, I speak in a very middle class way. The interesting thing that I, that I was trying to point on is this idea of the myth, uh, the deconstruction of myth. So one of the myths that I battle every single day is that can a man with the tattoos all over himself look serious? Uh, and my business partner, Paletta, who's very smart and much smarter than me, has to battle every single day to say, can a black female really lead in a boardroom? And every single day we both reflect on one another's, the, the curse, the burden of this. And it's really only because we've deconstructed these myths at work that we're able to discuss them. What has, what's the, the outcome of which, of course, is a far more creative team because we've overcome them. So, so we can use these things as almost as weapons, which is interesting uh, in and of itself. But myth-busting is, to me is, is one of the things that we have to focus on. So if I was the leader of a large organization right now, I'd be deconstructing the myths that, are, that hold true, which is, can someone young lead? Uh, can someone young and black lead? 
can young, young black female lead? You know, these are the, large, largely these are the myths that we seem to be living in. This millennial discussion has, has brought that on. It's, it's charged this discussion about the presumptions we have about the world around us. Millennials are just asking questions, like why is it like this? Why does it have to be like this? So don't you think, though, that that comes down, because I have, and it's probably people wouldn't expect it from uh, an HR team, that my team is, they're very diverse, but our conversations are hugely racially gender charged. Mm-hmm. From the air conditioning being on black or white yeah. setting, there are constant jokes about someone in my team is wearing a, re- a weave, we know she's a different person when she has that hair on. It is the most open, yeah. colorful conversations you can have. But I can have them because I don't have a chip on my shoulder, because I'm not racist, yeah. and I know I don't have a bias. So I wonder if there aren't conversations we're not having because of that deep-seated, ugly truth within of, I do have issues with it. I do have issues with young people. I do have issues with Jewish people. So I'm not willing to talk about it because they might see through my disingenuous yeah. comments. Um, I suppose that, that, you know, you mentioned this Briar conversation, and mm. this is about to get deeply introspective, <laughs> is, is the conversations that I've had in mixed company when I go and play golf. I, I mean, again, I don't look like a golfer, which that's, that thankfully I don't look like a golfer. Um, but when you're at the golf club, boy, do the prejudices come out. Mm-hmm. And it is unbelievable how much is going unsaid. So it's, you're right. How, how can we, and these are leaders of, of large organizations mm. that are having these conversations. It comes across in the way that, that we treat other people who we believe to be inferior. So I see it often where the prejudices come out, in the way that some people treat domestic workers. So you can see, if you, if you want to have a deeply introspective moment and you're, and you're listening, go home and think about your relationship with the people that you work for who you believe are subordinate to you. And you will have a very strange moment if you don't think of them as the mother of a person or a father of the person or potentially someone who, who could be far better than that. Because I think one of the troubles that I've seen is if... It's, it's because we, although we perceive to look like we are addressing these things in public, what's not going on there is the deeper-seated values that we've already created, the scary stuff. Um, I'd say even, even to be more controversial, if you look at, if I go to people's homes and you look at some of the very deeply disturbing things that are still happening, and this came up recently at a conversation I had with someone um, in our company where she in her apartment building they had an issue with the cleaning staff um, because one of the uh, one of the people who lives in the apartment building felt that the cleaning staff shouldn't be using the toilets so I think for me even more controversial what is the bathroom rule in your home um, about people that work for you or people that come in that are working if you have tilers in your house or what is their bathroom rule what would you serve them if you were serving them lunch? Would they eat off your cutlery? Would they? And, and I think that's how deep it still is. These are conversations I'm still having with people of a tin mug being given um, to a gardener. I think we, we have so much work to do. We can't fast forward um, and say that we've worked through so much. We still have to face all of those really uncomfortable conversations. Yeah, and, and to bring it back to the business discussion, because there is a relevance here, so a lot of small to medium enterprises that we consult to often struggle with the lack of agency of the employees that they hire. In other words, they don't take control or accountability for their tasks. But then you look at the way that they are treated, these people. It doesn't matter, across the race and gender line. So for instance, if, if the leadership eats separately and everyone else eats in another room, 
uh, or even worse still, eat drinks with tin cups, which we see a lot of um, mm. in organizations. How can you expect that person to be a contributing member of that society when you don't treat them as equal? I mean, it starts with that. So equality should be the base right before we move on to these other the, the, the idea of inclusion. Because you can't if you're at two different levels. That's a, a weird, Steve, again, good luck. When I just put this in the podcast, me just doing my hands. Uh, you can't have, have people operating at different levels in their own minds. Um, and it's, it's so scary. I think it starts with the parking. So <laughs> our, our EVP here, Anton, um, it's, his, it's his biggest gripe. People shouldn't have dedicated parking bays. That starts your work day off. I walk in, I drive in, am I valued and important enough to have my own parking bay? Or do I park anywhere and have to walk in? And who do I see as I'm walking in has a parking bay? How has that decision been made? Um, so in the Pretoria office, first come, first serve. Um, unfortunately, in the Johannesburg office, we have a bit of a tricky situation in our parking that's super boring, so I won't get into it. But it starts there. At do, does every employee feel that they're starting off their day with the same rights as everyone else? Um, I think that's hugely important. But, but do you think that there are companies that even think that far? Because, again, you know, kind of talking about the transition from the industrialized world into the connected economy, those rules were set up because they wanted to subliminally beat people into submission. Mm. There's a hierarchy that exists in corporations for a reason. It's so that you can control people. So I think that until corporations realize that what they thought was a gift is actually a curse. Because what that does is you, you're creating limitations, which means you're not really unlocking people or their potential. Because all, they, all they're doing is they're drones. They're like, okay, mm. I know that I have to go there, I have to work a 40-hour week, every 30 days there's some money going to drop in my bank account, and then I'm going to start the cycle all over. And if, you know, I postulate in the right way and pretend in the right way, then maybe there'll be succession or if I'm overly ambitious or whatever it may be, you know, there's all of these stigmas that exist. Well, you know, absolutely, I think, sorry, just to jump in there, this, it, it does tie back to this idea of employee engagement. We see a lot of frustration with low levels of engagement in morale. And we often find that those, those two measures are symptomatic of deep, deeper issues. Um, where there's low levels of autonomy and agency in, in organizations. And it's often brought about by one, a charismatic leader who does believe that there should be some sort of like vertical ascension through an organization. That we start, well, to quote Drake, start from the bottom. And now <laughs> they get there, they're there. Um, but it is very interesting, right? And, and it just reminded me of the story that in the, I, I can't remember which biography of Steve Jobs it was, but to bring back to the parking idea, Steve Jobs used to park in the handicapped parking at Apple. He just chose it because it was the closest. And I just thought to myself, what an absolute clown. Um, that work, to me, it's almost so bad that he thinks he's above mm. almost everyone in that organization and has decided that his parking spot is perhaps the best way to do it. He also used to never have his number plate on his car so that he could uh, regularly break the rules. And you just think, what does the precedent that sets that our leader doesn't respect people who are handicapped and doesn't respect the law? But now, that, obviously, that's the extreme, but just think about there's a bank in South Africa where the executives enter off in their separate entrance and are met by a person who parks their car. And I think for me, I wouldn't. So we all remember our first job or, you know, I didn't get into this role straight out of varsity. 
I've worked. I've worked as a as an as a colleague. I've I've done my my fair share of slogging away. I wouldn't be comfortable to share my views openly with someone who had a parking bay with their name on and an office. But I do think instead of just focusing on the negatives, like what are quick wins for companies in terms of this? So at Sage, what do we do? We took down offices. People sit with their teams. If you walk to the marketing section, to the sales section, the vice president of sales doesn't have an office. He sits on the floor um, with his team. So parkings, same thing, easy win. And even further on the parkings, what we looked at last year and what we're working on now is when you think about parking, you think about the employees that need to be closest to the entrance to the building. So who are those? Of course, any disabled employees you have, critical to make sure that that's looked after. But then who have we forgotten? We've forgotten heavily pregnant women. And I'm the CEO of Facebook, Sheryl Sandberg, in her book, Lean In, which I love, and I would suggest every male and female um, out there reads, she spoke about pregnancy parking. And it's the simplest, cheapest thing for a company to do. Give one or two bays at the entrance to all of your buildings to women in their third trimester of work. If you have ever ever been in your third trimester and you have a handbag, a laptop bag, a lunch bag, and you have to walk from the opposite end of a parking lot, your day starts off feeling like no one cares that you're heavily pregnant. And I think that's another part of, of this new world we live in. For me as a female, where I'm a working mom, and that's not being addressed in the workplace. The workplace hasn't caught up. I have this high-powered job. I don't have a wife at home who's doing my dry cleaning. I have to do all of that. So how is a company making that more comfortable for me? How is a company saying, you have given your heart and soul to this business and you've taken us places, so you do deserve the right to have children and you deserve to do that respectfully and comfortably when that time comes. One of the first things we looked at last year is changing our maternity policy. It's not good enough to leave our employees um, to their own devices in terms of UIF. I don't know if any of you in this room have ever been to apply for UIF. It is, it's really degrading. And if you are heavily pregnant or have a newborn and you have to go and do that, yes, you can pay an agency to do that. But again, if your UIF portion is so small, you're having to give a part of that to an agency we just haven't caught up. We haven't taken all things into account. We want females in leadership positions. We want them in technology. We want them to work these high-powered jobs, but they still want to have families. So how do we as a company make sure that they have the ability to balance their lifestyle? Yeah, I think it's very interesting. There's a, there's a move also in the, the social impact work um, that's been done in large part by NGOs, like a group of community we are part of called Open Audio where we look at broader social issues. And I often think if, if there's one thing that I'm going to make my life's work, which is to redirect that same social thinking into the workplace. And you mentioned this idea of how do we design organizations that enliven the, the I suppose, or, or no, that, that allow for young people to have incredibly um, interesting roles and be pregnant and mm. be women. Mm. Um, it's that idea of someone who's just not one or, those or, or the other. I mean, you, that for me is fascinating that, that, that you're actually starting to consider that because a largely held belief by some people is the frustration that nothing seems to be done. But I, but I love the idea of that um, dashing down office walls. It's, it's starting to happen. I mean, you look, you're looking at yeah, I mean, organizations like big telcos in this country that are starting to realize that office spaces um, exclude people. 
just by giving people a name on the door, uh, excludes people, it means limit your access. And if you limit your access to people that, that's for me to imply something else, Gerard, I jumped in, you looked like you were just about to say something. No, no, I'm, I'm listening to the conversation. I, I, I wanted to ask you something. This, mm-hmm. this actually brings me on something, that, something that you and I have discussed in the past. Um, there, there is a, there's an interesting trend of late of companies that are selling diverse experiences, in fact, the study of experiences. Mm-hmm. And I saw this frightening, um, a frightening product that people are offering tours of Soweto, tours of Deep Slit, tours of, mm-hmm. of places where people can go and interact with uh, the other. Mm-hmm. in a safe safari-like um, way. way. Yeah. Um, it's like Disneyland I, Africa. But they, they're trying something, which is good. But they're doing it very badly, but that's, that's a different matter. I think a large part of, of getting becoming more empathic with other people is understanding them and living some part of your life like that. Um, I've forced myself, I'm a fan of metal music. Um, that's the most cliche thing that possibly man of tattoos likes metal. But I went to a lot of, uh, I guess, hip-hop clubs to try and understand this community that we were being asked to understand. Changed my perception entirely of this person, the hip-hop artist. Now, how can we do that credibly? Though? How can we go and encourage people to live? There's the question that I can't phrase there without being... But I, I, understand, I understand what you're saying. It, it's, a, it's a very big challenge, Vincent. Simply because, like I was saying, for the business school client that we have, we create these experiences. But I think the difference between what you've described and what we do is that we literally design the experience with the intention of, one, creating disruption. Because until you are out of that comfort zone, you won't actually appreciate the context that's created for you. Um, As opposed to, uh, I actually briefly used to do what you would do is because you'd find corporations that are like, oh no, we want to, we want to know what Vilakazi Street is like and you know, other people, not everybody's been there, we want to all go eat at Sukumzi's and understand what the fascination is with whatever. That's cool, but I think that once you, that's, that's almost like a foot in the door because that means that you've gotten a group of people into a headspace where they're open to wanting to do stuff and then it's being able to take that and build on it. That's, that's where I think that, that that's an opportunity. As opposed to guys that are just like, okay, well, people want to see how the other half lives, so we're just going to take whatever we can get, and there's no real value that comes out of that particular experience, whatever it may be. Yeah, I think because that, that I guess, is my frustration, and it characterizes the way that diversity is often seen, which is this attempt that we can buy it. So yeah. if we, if we, and, we, and we can hire someone to help us with this thing, <laughs> which brings us back to this idea of overcoming your cognitive biases, oh, no, your, your biases, I mean you can't buy your way out of, out of that. You can't pay someone, oh, well maybe a therapist can help, <laughs> but I mean, there, but there is a move, and I've seen it quite a lot, a very worrying move that we're doing human safaris. Which is quite a, which is quite a controversial topic, but yeah, it's something that I'm very nervous of, co- of companies who listen to this this podcast and think, well, by God, I better go and understand these other people. And the best route for me to do that is to go and just like hire a company that can help me live in their shoes. We see that as a response to this quite a lot. So the last company I worked for employed mainly um, expatriates because it was an oil and gas company. So the specialists come from other parts of the world. I think the challenge, because I was interested in every kind of year-end function we had, I'd push the agenda in trying to have it in kind of more 
challenging areas, um, more South African areas, instead of going to a restaurant that you could actually pick up and drop in the US or in Europe. I think the issue that you haven't mentioned is the safety. And it is, it's a perception, but there is also some reality to how safe do people feel, um, how safe do, do companies feel. And that is a challenge of it feels safer to go on a, I'm quoting you, a safari um, than to brave it on my own. For me, I've, I've done community work. I studied as a psychologist, so I've gone into areas that none of my friends had gone into. And that safety built up, that bias broke down slowly. So I do, I, I'm just saying let's not bash those safaris because that could be the first door that opens to a more, if I've gone on a safari and I felt comfortable, I suddenly realized there weren't 30 AK-47s pointing, I wasn't robbed, okay? So you've broken down that bias. Now, do you want to go on a safari every year? No, hopefully at some point you'll get in your own car and you'll um, you know, adventure into your own country. But I do think that there is something to be said for just gently taking people down a road where you can slowly break down a bias. And sometimes that's just taking them into town. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many of you take friends into town and it's this place that for a lot of, of of Joe Burgers, you've grown up hearing, don't ever go there. People throw TVs out the windows. People will kill you. Um, only drug dealers live there. So, uh, you know, for my generation, it was hugely different. All the nightclubs we went to were in town. There was no choice but to go into town. Um, but I think you have to be gentle with people. I think you have to walk a long, slow road and not force this on people because I don't think it'll be swallowed genuinely. That's a good point. I think just on that point, um, the, the challenge becomes that <clears throat> if I, a small story, when I was much younger, I grew up with a very eclectic and diverse kind of musical background. All kinds of music were played around me and I particularly liked jazz. And as a teenager, all my friends used to criticize me. They used to say, why are you listening to old people's music? What's wrong with you? And I used to be like, okay. And so for me, what I did to make them understand was I created the context. So I used to take them to um, Kippe's Jazz Club because my, my mom was very active in the entertainment industry as well. And the minute you put somebody in front of a stage where somebody's playing a saxophone or playing a bass or playing a piano, and I said to them, right, so all that stuff that you bob your head to, can you make it do that? Do you understand? how amazing this music is. And they're like, but how do these guys know to, to be in tune and to talk to one another and they're not facing one another and there's not even sheet music on the stand. I'm like, exactly. So when you can understand and appreciate the genius of what's happening there, you know, that's a conversation, then you can understand why I'm appreciating this as opposed to what the radio is telling me I have to like. Yeah, and it's a good point and it's a good chance to wrap up, which is awesome if you've got any interesting thoughts now as a chance to get them out of the system be controversial yeah. La last one for me and I'm I feel that I've neglected this group I mentioned them briefly at the beginning but the LBGT yeah. community and I say that because I have a dyslexia so I say it slowly because I have to really think about it um, in terms of the maternity policy, hugely important for me that we don't just look at mothers who are going to carry their own children. 
so we expanded it to adoption to make sure that all communities, all instances where people want to have children is catered for. And the last two companies I've worked for, they haven't even thought about that. They haven't even thought about, is it fair that I adopt a baby, they're also a newborn, I also need to bond, and I don't give them any time off. So I think we just have to never, ever accept the status quo with anything in terms of religion, race, gender, age, any aspect of diversity. Make sure that we are questioning, pulling down our own walls, pulling down other people's walls, but respectfully and gently at the same time. Absolutely. Cool. Thank you so much. That was very interesting. This episode of the Sage Summit's Invisible Admin Podcast marks the conclusion of our five-part series on the future of work. But the conversation doesn't end here. Join the Sage Summit discussions by following Sage Group ZA on Twitter or by using the hashtag FutureOfWorkSA between 7 to 9 March. Thanks for joining us.